0: From the AutoLine studios, here is your host, John McElroy.
1: I want to thank you for joining us on AutoLine this week, where the topic today is all about autonomous technology. That is, cars that can drive themselves. might be happening faster than you think. And to get to the bottom of where it is all headed, I've got three experts here to talk all about it. One from a car company, one from an automotive supplier, and one from Academia. We have Stefan Linkenbach from the giant German supplier Continental. Raj Rajkumar from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and John Cap from General Motors. Great to have you all here on Out of Line this week. Could be here. Would so how soon are we going to see autonomous technology? I know there's all different kinds of opinions about this. John, I'll start with you. And I mean fully autonomous. When are we going to see it?
0: Well, you know, it's not going to just fall out of the sky and all of a sudden we have fully autonomous cars, to be honest. We're, we're going to have steps. Uh, leading up to it. We've introduced a, a concept that we've talked about publicly over the last year called a supercruise, where a driver can take their hands off the wheel on a highway driving. we see that as a logical step, something that can probably be brought to the market yet this decade. But there's a lot of challenges to, to get into these systems before you can you know, talk about addressing all the complicated types of driving systems and say, yeah, I can sit in the back seat, push a button, and take a nap. That's a ways off. How far off, though? No. You know, it's, it's really hard to say. You know, the, the technology is moving very quickly. They probably would have surprised a lot of people just just 10 years ago. So it's, it's pretty hard to say. Are we, are we, you know, one decade, two decades, three decades? What, what's going to happen? But we do know that it's going to move very quickly. And as consumers embrace these technologies, who doesn't like to be pampered in their car and, and get the great conveniences of adaptive cruise control even today? And if we start adding the, the, the steering control to these systems so that they can work in more and more and more conditions, it'll, it'll happen quickly. Raj, you
1: personally and Carnegie Mellon University have been at the forefront of this technology,
2: so I pose the same question to you. When do you think we'll see fully autonomous cars? So I agree with John on the first point, that is, we'll see incremental features happening on a step-by-step basis, and one fine day, the vehicle will be driving itself, and we will not even notice because most of the functions have been taken away from you one by one. As an example, uh, John cited uh, Super Cruise, which is also called a highway pilot feature, where the vehicle drives itself on the highways. A second feature would be, if you're stuck in a traffic jam, moving at very low speeds, the car will be able to drive itself, you can do something else. A third part is that you let your car go park itself. So these are intermediate steps, and one fine day, full autonomy will happen, I guess personally As an academic, I can look into the crystal ball and say some outrageous statements. Say them, please. (laughs) So I have maintained for quite some time that by about 2020 or so, that technology to do autonomous driving, fully autonomous driving, will be there. But then you have to have the society catch-up, cost catch-up, and regulatory, the legal processes catch-up, who's liable when things go wrong. So I expect that in the 2020s, sometime, basically, we'll see these things happening. Stefan, you, your company is going
1: to make so many of the sensors and technology that go into these vehicles. Will you be making fully
3: autonomous sensor
1: technology by 2020?
3: Uh, it's, it's not just the sensor technologies. Yeah? It's much more than, than only sensing or the environmental model. You need, you need, in addition to that, you need redundancies in the system, steering, braking, and so on. So, I mean, we have our own roadmap, and in our roadmap, we think that we will be able to deliver parts for this technology in the time frame of 2025. So we call this fully autonomous. It's different names and it's step-by-step, step, starting with partially automati- uh, automation in 16. Um, highly automation is highway, pilot, or however you want to call it, in 20, and then fully automation in 2025.
1: Now, Google says its fully autonomous technology will be ready in the 2017-2018 time frame. Nissan claims it is going to have fully autonomous technology across its entire lineup by 2020. Are these two companies overly optimistic? How do you all see it?
0: A lot of it's the terminology that Stefan just said. I mean, you've you got to talk about, all right, what, what is this car really going to do? What, what type of a feature are we really going to promise to a customer that just laid down money for this vehicle? What does it say in the owner's manual? What, what can it actually do? So there's a lot of terms that are being thrown around. Um, these are all automated type technologies they are going to assist people a great deal. The, the term autonomous generally means to most of us, you don't have to do anything. And those are the technologies that are going to be a little bit further out than the automated and the assistant type technologies that are going to be showing up soon you kind of got to get into the details of what type of a feature are you actually talking about. We need specific <laughs> definitions yes. is what you're saying. When you say
1: fully autonomous, define what you mean by that is what you're saying.
0: Or, or, or more importantly, I think, is what feature are you talking about, right? In the end, our customers don't really care what type of a label um, the, the, the system gets, right? If you call it autonomous or semi-autonomous or partially autonomous, they care about, wow, I have this feature that if I push the button, it's going to give me this convenience. You know, like the feature I talked about, it'll let you track down down the freeway now the driver still has to pay attention with 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 the level of technology we're talking about because the, the sensing systems despite our, our good supplying friends uh, are not delivering capability where we can just completely rely on them they're they're not perfect but they're they're good enough that we can start to give a lot of this benefit to the drivers as long as they stay engaged and get the benefit of it and then and then down the road you can start to do more
1: Raj you said that you believe in outrageous statements. you said 2020. What is your thoughts
2: on what Google and Nissan have said? So so to me uh, it's again goes back to terminology. you would be able to drive quote unquote, autonomously 90% percent of the time. As a very specific example, just this morning I drove from uh, Pittsburgh to Detroit, drove about five hours of which more than four and a half hours, was on a highway, right? So if you basically take 90% of the time, the vehicle by 2020 will be driving autonomously 90% of the time. But that 10% could take a long time to solve,
3: right? So so the driver, the human, will be in the loop for quite some time. As the the question, how we define autonomous driving? This, what what you explained, highway driving, For us it's not autonomous driving, It's for us it's highly automation and therefore we are on the same time range. We say highly automation on highways 2020, so therefore we are back. Let's talk cost a little bit. John, you've talked
1: about this uh, uh, super cruise uh, system, this automated and adaptive cruise control that also Mm -hmm. does does some Mm -hmm. steering. What might that cost when it
0: comes to market? Well, obviously, we're not going to get specific yet about a, a well, f- future part, product no. programs, but, I mean, if we if we look today, for example, we launched about a year and a half ago a pretty advanced suite of active safety technologies on our Cadillacs. We call the Driver Assist Package. It's full speed range adaptive cruise control, rear cross-traffic alert, <clears throat> collision mitigation braking. It's even got a rear emergency auto braking system. It's got several sensors on it, six radars on it total. Some of them we buy from Continental. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an option package that costs a customer around 3000 to $3,400. It includes HUD and some other features like that. I mean, that, that's kind of the level of a technology package that, that you know, consumers are willing to buy for, for these, these types of feature sets. So it, it makes sense that as we move forward a few years, um, some of the technology, the costs will come down and then we pile some new technologies onto it, you know, and it's, but it's probably going to be in this, you know few thousand dollar range is where these option packages are going to lie.
3: Do you all agree with that? I mean, mean, it's very helpful for us that um, most of the sensors and most of the architecture what we need in the cars is driven by safety. So if we have all these safety features, and then we have to add specific redundancies, specific additional sensors, whatever uh, is necessary for this dedicated function uh, to come to this partially automate or to this kind of automation. Yeah? So safety helps, and that's the reason why we think coming from safety and then further development into uh, these features, assist systems, autonomous driving. Yeah, I would add
2: that uh, this is cutting edge technology almost by definition start at the high end of the car segment and then move downwards. So to start with, I'd expect that it would be out of the order of uh, 6000 to $10,000, if you will. But then when it migrates to the, uh, uh, the car, the family sedan segment, which is the sweet spot of the market, I would expect somewhere between three
0: to six K. To be uh, te- Technology breakthroughs will, will allow that, that to happen for these things to move down. And if we look at just just a couple of years ago, we introduced um, using a camera technology to do forward collision alert. Just go back a few years ago, we can only do that type of a feature with a radar system right so we 're into a more expensive system now we 're doing it with a camera that does lane departure warning and collision alert in the same box and on vehicles like a like a Chevy Malibu for example you know it retails for about four hundred dollars so the, the The prices will come down on these things as the technologies advance, but we also need to be robust. There needs to be, some cases, redundancy of of sensing and redundancy of control systems, especially if we're going to be letting people take their hands off the wheel and things like that, and so that adds some cost.
1: Mm -hmm. Wasn't uh, one of the most expensive parts of these systems the LIDAR, the, the laser radar? I call it the spinning doohickey that you see on some of these
2: autonomous vehicles. Isn't that the single most expensive part of these systems? If you do include that particular sensor that you are talking about, John, yes, it would be the most expensive. And in reality, in practice, you will never ever see that in production. Because it's too expensive. It's too expensive, too bulky, not so pretty, and then it's actually spinning at uh, 10 rotations per second at highway speeds, any mechanical engineer would say that this is not going to last.
1: Mm-hmm. And are we going to get to the situation you just talked about, John, where in your forward collision warning, you've been able to go from a uh a radar system to a camera that's a whole lot cheaper. Do you see that thing happening that maybe you get not to need LIDAR at all?
0: You know, at this point, we're looking at all the different types of sensors that, that could be used. Um, so, that, so that example there, we were able to take a feature that you could only do with a radar before and move it to something less expensive, like a, like a camera. Um, similarly, there may be other uh, features that we can we can use with sensors that are less than, than this research type of a uh, uh, sensor that's $50,000, the one that you're talking about. So that's a research tool. Um, you've had our styling people on, on your shows before. None of them would look the way that looks on no, the outside of our mean. car. Um, and, and so we know that. So we, we continue to try to look at what are other alternative sensors. And it's gonna probably be a combination of sensors. So we use cameras today. We have ultrasonics in our cars. We have radars. We fuse them together. Uh, we're going to continue to try to push the envelope of, you know, what, what better sensors are coming. If it's LiDAR technology, um, we're looking at that. We've got research going on to look at all those types of sensors, too. And then, and then we need to look at the practical part of it. Sorry, which, which of these are ready to be actually put in a vehicle that can integrate, can look good, and that we can develop a control system around?
1: I know uh, Valeo, the French supplier, showed me a LiDAR system. That's much smaller, and they say it would only cost a couple of hundred dollars. But they admit it would not be as capable as as the fully spinning one. So it would seem to me that there are a whole
0: bunch of different solutions that are being evaluated. There's a lot of solutions that are being looked at, and and the question is, yeah, you know, which of these sensor and technologies are going to be practical, robust, helpful enough that you know they start to show up on lots of vehicles, which gets the volume down, uh, you know, which helps with the economies, of scales, and all that type of thing. So a lot of this is still very much in the advanced development and, and research stage, even though the basic technologies, like Raj said, are, are kind of ready. In fact, even the, the DARPA Urban Challenge from, from six, seven years ago now, that actually all three companies here were a part of, a winning team, um, showed that the basic technologies exist for a vehicle to drive. That, that vehicle didn't even have a driver in it. And yet, it was completely impractical. So that's what we're working out
3: now. And then- I mean, the, that's the reason why we see the different approaches on the road. Yeah? You have the, the approach from Daimler, where you have stereo camera and radars. The, you have, for example, Google with the Velodyne on top. Different other research cars with a Velodyne or with the Lidar, a LiDAR-based uh, um, system. Nobody knows at this time what will be the right approach in the future. What is affordable and what has this, this uh, performance to fulfill all the safety aspects of this technology. Here's another
1: question. Uh, Google, of course, uh, owns the cloud to speak. Will these uh, autonomous cars have to connect to the cloud or can they operate even if the cloud goes down? Where
2: where do you think that will shake out? So this clearly gives uh, Google a significant edge uh, in in the marketplace, but the cloud could go down. Connectivity demands can be very high and you still need to be able to operate locally, keep your passengers uh, safe. Right? So I think you have to be able to operate locally and independently.
0: Yeah. But your, your question that prompts actually another, another sensor that, that's gonna begin to emerge out there, and that's the sensor of, of vehicle-to-vehicle and vehicle-to-infrastructure communication, where, where all cars are equipped with a two-way radio, and so are traffic lights and others, and we talk to each other about what's, what's ahead or the state of the traffic light, and that's one way to overcome some of the inherent weaknesses of some of these other sensors we're talking about. And sometimes a sensor on a vehicle can't see around a corner or can't see four or five cars ahead. So as we move to vehicle-to-vehicle technology, now we, can, now we have another sensor that, that can be fused in with the system and help make better decisions, and that's gonna be a big enabler too. So,
1: so what you're saying, the vehicle-to-vehicle technology would say you n- don't necessarily have to communicate with the cloud?
0: Not necessarily, no. I mean, we're going to get benefit just from me talking to your car. Uh, how fast are you going? How fast are you approaching the intersection? What's between the two cars? Did you just hit an icy patch? Well, if you can report that to three or four cars back, you know, there's some significant benefit that can come out of that too with these systems and make up for some of the other uh, things that are catching up with the onboard sensors.
3: I mean, for us, we think that uh, in the future for all these autonomous technologies, we see a significant benefit in having this cloud. Uh, that's the reason why we have this new Corporations with IBM and Cisco uh, because we think it's very helpful and it's necessary to have this additional information based on the cloud uh, server um, and then you can give all the autonomous all these cars who are in this mode um, additional information additional uh, traffic information and all this it's helpful and um, we think it, it's it will come. I want to get into some of the legal
1: and legislative hurdles, but let's talk about human factors, too. I've got to believe, for the general public, this idea of a car driving itself could put their hair on fire. I mean, just just scare them completely. What do you all see as the hurdles of overcoming public resistance?
0: Well, you know, I, I don't think there's all that much public resistance. I mean, most most people like Convenience features. Nobody likes to roll up their windows by by hand anymore. Very few people like to drive transmissions that don't automatically shift themselves. Um, the, the trick is is to provide the feature in a way that that it's um, convenient to use. It's easy to use. It's it's intuitive. Uh, so we do do a lot of human factors work, even on our active safety features that we're developing and launching in systems right now. Uh, we do a lot of studies about uh, not only what do people like or dislike, but, but how do they behave. So sometimes we construct experiments where we build up cars um, that have these technologies, put participants in them, you know, from a research standpoint, and, and let them drive the vehicles. And we observe then how, uh, how they react in certain situations, what types of warnings get, what types of reactions, to make sure that we don't have unintended consequences by putting these technologies out. And as we move to more automated systems we need to be able to communicate with the driver about the capability of that automated system so they understand when, it's, when it can be trusted and, and when it needs to be handed back over to the, to the driver to grab the wheel. And, and so there's a lot of human factors work that's gonna to need to be done to make that seamless and confident for people. So to me, the onus
2: really is upon uh, industry engineers and researchers to show that the technology is safe. No. So safety is a given. From a consumer standpoint, they might not necessarily be paying for the safety thing, but it has to be there for the technology to be deployed and used widely, right? And beyond that is basically the human factors are to be appropriate so that people recognize the value of the convenience and are willing to pay, pay for it.
1: Stefan, isn't that the, the big payoff in all of this? Not just the convenience of not having to drive,
3: but there's a potential for a huge improvement in safety. Yeah, I mean, it's for us, it's one of the key drivers yeah. make mobility safe. It's our, our major, major goal in, the, uh, in, our, in our company. We need safety, and therefore we develop all these safety functions, all these safety features based on camera, radar, and um, you saw that 90% of all um, fatalities or all accidents are based on human errors. So, 90%. If we could assist the driver, make the, his mobility safe, then we can save a lot of lives. So, and therefore it's um, one of the major motivation for us to develop these, these technologies. And uh, if you can convince the driver that the system is not scaring, that it's a, a feature, it's a assist system, and he is master of this, he can take over if he wants. he will accept and he will be very, really happy to
1: have this. You know, in addition to uh, that statistic of 90% of all traffic accidents are caused by human error, I just saw another one that Continental put out. Half of all drivers have been in an accident at some time or other. Maybe not a serious one, but half of all drivers have been in an accident. So the, the payoff
0: in safety could be humongous. That's a lot of crash. You know, the, the potential's huge. <clears throat> the potential's huge. The convenience part's huge. And also imagine people that, that currently can't drive because they're, they're handicapped or, or getting elderly and, and no longer have the reflexes to drive anymore. I mean, these technologies have potential to help all those situations. I mean, who, who doesn't? We, we want computers to help us in so many aspects of our lives. It just makes sense that we'd like them to help us driving too. We just need to make sure we're building up the technology in a way that we can do that.
2: But uh, we must keep in mind that there is still a lot of distance to travel. My understanding is that uh, a fatality from an automotive accident happens every 20 million miles of driving or so. 20 million miles is a lot of miles. So technology has to basically reach a certain point where we say, hey, this technology is better than humans driving the cars. Raj, what do you think
1: about the legislative efforts that are being made, too? Is that going to be
2: a hindrance? Is this going to help it along? How do you see it? I think to the credit of both the state departments of transportation and the U.S. Department of Transportation, there is significant growing awareness and consensus. They need to step in, try to homogenize the laws across all the 50 states. If each state has its own Piecemeal kind of a solution, but they are incompatible across state borders. Once your car goes from California to Arizona, everything changes. So I think the U.S. Department of Transportation needs to step in and provide some common guidelines, if you will. I imagine General Motors
1: is really hoping for this kind of common approach to it as well.
0: Yeah, as Raj said, I mean, just just imagine if 50 different states had, had their own definitions of, of what type of autonomy is, is okay or not okay or what type of uh, proof we need to provide that these systems are safe, um, that, that could make it very difficult. And it would also slow down the, the deployment of the technologies. So, yeah, we, we've gone on record as, as well saying, look, to the extent that we need to, to, to come up with some standards for these technologies, and, and right now it's not even clear uh, that there need to be standards or what those standards need to be, but it makes sense to do research to understand that. And the U.S. DOT has been doing some research. We, we collaborate with them to figure out all right, what are the types of, of, of risks or, or, or hurdles that are, that are part of these technologies to make them safe, and it's possible that out of that may come some standards, uh, but by far we'd prefer to have one set of standards than 50 different standards. And so to that extent, I think a lot of the states that are actively involved in this, there's a combination of they're trying to lure uh, companies to come do development in there and develop technology in their state, um, maybe, and maybe there's also an intention to try to make sure these technologies are done safely too, although to be honest, they're really not close enough to that to be able to judge that at this point.
1: Stefan, I want to ask you, where's this technology going outside of the U.S. market? You know, you come from a German uh, supplier company. There's another big German supplier company, Brand B, Bosch. And, of course, BMW and Mercedes and the Volkswagen group are are very heavily into this. So is this going to happen in Germany or Europe before the
3: U.S.? How do you see it? Um, It's a difficult question, yeah. I'm not convinced that we'll have the technologies at uh, Germany f- uh, before we have it in, in, in the US. I don't know at this time. Depends a little bit on the definition. What is the goal of this, of this next step? If we talk about a traffic jam assist, I think the, the traffic situation is similar between Europe or Germany and the US. If it comes to highway, to where we have really different um, speed ranges in the U.S. with a range of 70 miles per hour. In Germany, without any speed limits, it's a different, it's a different situation. So, therefore, I think traffic jam assist, highly autom- automation with speed limits sh- could be easier to, to launch in the U.S., but I have no idea what will be the first market to launch this technology at the end. Raj, any thoughts? You're the academic
2: that's studying all this. I would make two observations. Number one, all global OEMs in the top tier are working on this technology. No exceptions. Secondly, the fact that Europe is working on it, U.S. basically has the competitive juices flowing, and because the U.S. and Europe are doing it, Asia is also doing it, So I think we all be pushing each other, basically making this technology mature sooner rather
3: than later. And uh, one one additional comment, I mean, it's for us as suppliers, it's very, very helpful that we have the different regions um, developing these technologies, different OEMs, developing these technologies, because then we can come clo- uh, easier to a standard, because nobody is really interested in having different standards in the, in, the, in the US, and then a different standard to Europe, to Asia. Nobody could handle this, so and it's too expensive, and we should try to find an affordable way to bring this technology on the market. John, when we look back to the United States for the moment, of course, this
1: is the litigious society of the world. Is this something that worries General Motors introducing a technology like this that probably will bring a lot of lawsuits along with it?
0: Well, when you say <clears throat> technology like this, it goes back a little bit to, you know, are we talking about a car where you don't have to do anything? That that, that may very well change how, how that whole outlook is. But, but think about the time frame that we're in right now. We're, we're progressively introducing more and more automation, the systems are going to be able to do more and more for the driver. I don't see that really substantially changing the type of system that that we currently have. I mean, for the foreseeable future, the driver is going to be responsible for what these systems can do. I mean, that's just the level of technology and the reality. So um, it it becomes a bit of an academic question, quite honestly, for some time yet. Raj, how do you see it? So to me, I guess, uh, in addition to that, the car will
2: have a black box, which records what went on. So in a very real sense, the car will be able to defend itself. And then because the human will be in the loop for the foreseeable future, uh, as long as the technology did the right thing, did the safe thing, the human still has to bear responsibility. And Stefan, uh, as a supplier company, do you worry about lawsuits
3: coming back to Continental
1: as this technology is deployed?
3: I mean, at the end, it's, it's very important to be able to monitor the driver. Um, to see what is the driver doing, what is, is the driver, driver sleeping, that, that's the reason why we think this technology comes with a very new or with a new HMI. It's, it's important to have interior cameras to monitor the driver or anything like this to can uh, um, say or can, can document what is the situation, what has the driver done in this particular situation. Oh, very interesting.
1: So what we're going to be approaching is a car that's not only intelligent enough to drive itself, but really document everything that's been going on that might help in a court of law. And I guess this gets back to the the whole crash data recorders that have been on a number of cars for quite some time right now. there were legal suits that had to determine who really owned the information within there, and, and the car, courts pretty much resolved that. If, if you wanna go in and get that information as a third party, you gotta get a court warrant, as, mm-hmm. just as the same the police going into a house or place of business. So I think this will get resolved. I'm thrilled to hear you all talking about this technology. I think it's coming far faster than anyone might've imagined. But with that, John Cap from General Motors, Raj Rajkumar from Carnegie Mellon University, and Stefan Linkenbach from Continental. I want to thank you all for having been on Autoline this week.
2: Thank you. Thank so you, you. Joy, John.
1: And I want to thank all of you for having tuned in for what I think is going to be very exciting technology, transformative technology. I don't think we've quite figured out yet the impact this is going to have on the automotive industry. We'll see it before this decade is out. Thanks again, and join us next week for Autoline This Week.